Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning, and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club Forum, an agenda for elder justice. I'm Gloria Duffy, president and CEO of the club. In the COVID era, the club is presenting about a dozen live stream programs every week on a wide range of public issues to help keep our society connected and help us continue to work together to improve our society. We thank our members, our generous sponsors and donors, and you, our audience, for your support and participation during this time. You can find everything you need to know about the club and its programs at commonwealthclub.org. Today's program is presented by Grown Ups, one of the club's 15 member-led forums, each one of them on a topic they explore and educate about all through the year. Grown Ups is a name that was intentionally chosen years ago by this forum's founders. And at the end of today's program, you'll meet Grown Up Forum co-chair Denise Michaud. Very appropriately, we are talking a lot about social justice today for many groups in our society. But what is the largest and fastest growing group in American society? It's our senior population. Elders have been seriously impacted by coronavirus, both by virtue of their medical vulnerability and because the way some seniors live today in group facilities has put them at risk. To put it bluntly, our senior population is dying in large numbers from coronavirus. But seniors faced challenges well before coronavirus, from discrimination, elder abuse, and the need for greater respect for their wisdom and the contributions they make in a fast-paced world that often focuses on the young and the new. What is justice for elders? This provocative question will be addressed today by a terrific expert and leader, Lisa Narenberg. Lisa is the executive director of the California Elder Justice Coalition, a group of advocates that protects the rights, independence, and safety of older people. She is on the faculty at San Francisco City College, where she teaches gerontology, health and aging, elder abuse, and ageism. She's the author of two books, Elder Abuse Prevention, Emerging Trends and Promising Strategies, and a new book, Elder Justice, Ageism, and Elder Abuse. She's also advised the UGET Clark Foundation, dedicated to pre preventing elder exploitation, whose president, Ian Clark Devine, spoke with us just recently at the club. Ms. Narenberg is a graduate of the University of Minnesota with master's degrees in both social work and public health. In conversation with Ms. Narenberg will be Bill Benson. He's a longtime thought leader and driving force on health and aging. He served in a number of positions, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Aging at the Administration on Aging at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and as Staff Director of both the Subcommittee on Aging of the Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee and the Staff Director of the Subcommittee on Housing and Consumer Interests of the House Select Committee on Aging. Now, please send your questions for Ms. Narenberg via chat. They'll go to Bill, ben uh, Bill Benson, who will pose them to her. And now please join me in a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to Lisa Narenberg and Bill Benson. Well, thanks, Gloria. And thanks for all the work that you've been doing in elder financial abuse and for bringing the issue to the Commonwealth Club. It's really an honor to be here today. 
And thank you, Denise and the Grown Ups Forum for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with the Grown Ups. So when I was writing the book, I couldn't have imagined that we'd be at this inflection point at this point where it seems like just about everybody is talking about justice. But I feel really fortunate that it happened that way because I think older people really have an enormous amount to contribute to that dialogue, and I hope that they will. So I wrote the book because I'd been working in the field of elder abuse prevention for over 35 years. And during that time, abuse has been called a medical syndrome. It's been called the flip side of child abuse. It's been called a caregiving issue, domestic violence, a public health problem. But then in the early 2000s, it was reframed again as a matter of justice. The Elder Justice Act of 2010, which was part of the Affordable Care Act, was our first federal legislation on elder abuse. And it says explicitly that older people have the right to live free from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. So this reframing of abuse or freedom from it as a right, I thought really resonated. In elder abuse prevention, we confront a whole range of threats to justice that go beyond elder abuse. And one of our main challenges I think it goes back to our, our origins. Uh, back in uh, the early 1980s, when states started developing their elder abuse prevention systems, they designed their responses after systems that had been developed a couple of decades earlier for child abuse. And the assumption was that older people, like children, weren't gonna be able to come forward or weren't gonna be willing to come forward and ask for help themselves. And so we mandated third parties to who, people that were likely to uh, suspect abuse or to witness abuse to report to public agencies that would then go out and do investigations. So with kids, it's pediatricians and teachers and daycare workers. And with adults, it's virtually anyone that works with older people. And that list keeps getting longer. Here in California, just as of this month, we've added of investment advisors and brokers to the list of mandated reporters. And while that system has really clearly helped a lot of people, it's also led to accusations of ageism and paternalism. And so it seemed like it would be a good time for us to reevaluate what we've been doing. For those of us who grew up in this country, we take it for granted that we know what justice means. We pledge allegiance to a flag that stands for liberty and justice for all. We memorize in school some of the lines from the Declaration of Independence. And of course, there's Superman's oath to truth, justice, and the American way. But today, people are questioning those values and what, what our founders meant by values like that and how they apply today. And so what I was interested in is how they apply specifically to older people. So I started with the basics, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the right to life never actually made it into the Constitution or into any law, but it's been appropriated, and I think rather brilliantly, to refer to the rights of the unborn. It was a lot harder to find a definition of the right to life after birth, but I found this one that I think is really a great starting point for elder justice. It comes from a philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, who defines the right to life this way. It's being able to live a life of normal length, not dying prematurely, or before one's life is so reduced as to not be worth living. 
And she goes on to say that in free societies, people have to be adequately nourished, sheltered, and protected from assault to function. I think her definition is particularly poignant if you consider that in this country, the richest men live on average 15 years longer than the poorest. And for women, that difference is 10 years. Nearly 50% of low-income adults have disabilities compared to just under 11% for adults overall. And African-Americans are twice as likely to develop dementias. And for Hispanics, it's one and a half times as likely. So I think that Nussbaum's way of talking about the right to life really forces us to ask why it is that the right to life is so much farther out of reach for some groups than it is for others. Happiness, or the right to pursue it, also never made it into law, at least in this country. To see what that would look like, you'd have to go to Bhutan, where it's not happiness isn't just a national goal. They have a measure of gross national happiness. So on the lower left, you can see the, the, what they call the four pillars of happiness. It's equitable socioeconomic development, good governance, and the preservation of culture and the environment. And I think these measures don't just contribute to the quality of life. They're also prerequisites to justice. You can't really have justice if you don't have good governance or social development. To understand what the founders meant by liberty, you really need to remember the context. As you know, they were coming out of a monarchy and they were really deeply afraid of slipping back into one. So what they were really worried about was government overreach. So Jefferson described liberty as what the people are entitled to against every government on earth and what no government should refuse. So essentially the founders were defending people's rights to be left alone. And they made it very clear that when the government restricts freedom, it has to be for compelling reasons and that there has to be due process. Of course, at that time, those rights only applied to a very few people and we've been fighting ever since then to make them apply to everybody. But I think this way of defining liberty is especially important for older people because of the tendency we have to wanna to limit people's freedom as they get older. And it's often well-intended. Mom or dad are starting to have trouble at home and the kids think that maybe they'd be better off in a nursing home. And in elder abuse, we're always weighing safety versus freedom, trying to figure out when as a nation we have a responsibility to protect people while also protecting their, their freedom. There are a lot of different ways to think about justice. There's our justice system, which is designed to protect us from the government and from each other. And today we're certainly questioning how well a job it's doing in protecting people's rights. If you haven't read Gloria's uh, terrific column in the spring issue of Insight, I'd really encourage you to do it because in it she describes some of the barriers that elders face in seeking justice in the civil justice system. And a lot of other people, including Bill, who you'll be meeting later, are asking about how defunding the police or re-imaging uh, law enforcement in this country, what that's going to mean for elders and elder abuse. Justice is also about fairness and equity. And a lot of what we call aging policy in this country was created to achieve what's called distributive justice, which is fairness in how societies distribute resources and opportunities, and also intergenerational justice, which is equity between the young and the old. 
So for example, uh, Social Security was created during the Depression when people of all ages, and a lot of people of all ages were facing poverty, but the poverty rates for older people was especially high. And so Social Security really tried to level the playing field a little bit between the young and the old and the rich and the poor. Medicare also advanced distributive justice, and it also um, was in the interest of racial justice because hospitals couldn't be eligible for Medicare funding if they discriminated against black doctors or patients. So another major milestone in elder justice was the Supreme Court's Olmstead decision, which didn't even actually involve older people. The Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 established that people with disabilities had a right to reasonable accommodation in the community. And that really referred to in the workplace and in public settings. But then in the late 1990s, attorneys representing two women with mental disabilities who lived in a state-run institution made the case that their clients were actually capable of living in the community if they had reasonable accommodation and that failing to provide them with reasonable accommodation deprived them of their rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And courts later ruled that Olmstead also applied to nursing homes and even people that were living in the community that were at risk of being institutionalized. So Olmstead has really had an enormous impact. Before, the before that time, people had been arguing that people should be able to get their care in the home and it was usually because that's where most people want to get their care, or they made the argument that it was less expensive. But as a result of Olmstead, that reasonable accommodation in the community is a right. So individual rights are also addressed in international law. And after World War II, world leaders came together to try to ensure that the abuses that the world had just seen would never occur again. And so they created the United Nations and they also created the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now clearly universal applies to everybody, but it wasn't long before individual groups started coming forward and asking for special protections. And that led to the to human rights conventions, which are agreements between countries. It's really a kind of a treat of a treaty. It's not like the events, the way we think of conventions today. There are actually seven conventions for human rights, and they're listed here. So some of them actually have special protections for older people. For example, the Convention for the Rights of Women addresses discrimination against older women. That usually applies to things like inheritance laws. And the Convention on Torture and Cruel Treatment mentions restraints in nursing homes and uh, withholding pain medication from people. There's an active movement on now that's to, uh, to create a convention for the rights of older people. And it's, it's really interesting. There's a, a rich body of research and writing that's coming out of that initiative. And I'd really encourage people to, to take a look at that if you're interested. I think it really enriches our way of thinking about justice in this country. Another way of looking at elder justice is through the lens of ageism. I used to start, I used to teach a class, as, as Gloria mentioned, in ageism. And every semester I would start out by asking the class what, what the students thought ageism was. And without fail, somebody always brought up the Golden Girls. 
and we end up getting into these discussions about whether the girls portrayed older women in a positive light or a negative light, were they good for the cause or bad? And I think it's true how we portray older people in the media does affect how we think about aging and how we think about our own aging. And so it certainly is important. But Robert Butler, the geriatrician who coined the term ageism in the late 60s, was really interested in institutional ageism or how ageism is baked into our systems. He founded the Longevity, the International Longevity Center, which produced a, a report card on ageism that looked at these seven different metrics. So they include things like elder abuse, poor care in nursing homes, and the fact that older people fare so poorly during disasters. He also talked about discrimination in healthcare and business and the media. And Butler and his colleagues really believed that it was ageism that accounts for our failure as a, as a country to devote the resources that we need to prevent elder abuse and our failure to enforce regulations in nursing homes and our inattention to people in disasters. And we're certainly seeing the results of that today. Maggie Kuhn, who founded the Great Panthers, picked up the anti-ageism banner and she and her followers really saw themselves as the broader, as part of the broader social justice movement of the 1970s. So in addition to calling out ageism, they also aligned themselves with advocates for racial justice, for women's rights, for gay and lesbian rights. They also marched uh, against the war in Vietnam. I was really disappointed to learn that just a few years ago, the National Great Panthers organization had disbanded um, just when I think we need them the most, but there are local chapters and state chapters that are still going strong. I think another de development that really laid the groundwork for elder justice was the infusion of public health into aging and elder, just, and, uh, elder abuse. And today the public, I think, is really getting a crash course in public health. But I worry that it may be um, kind of a distorted view of what public health is. Public health isn't just about lockdowns and quarantines, masks and ventilators. It's true that public health has always been uh, concerned with, with disease epidemics. And in fact, it was started uh, during a cholera epidemic in the 1850s in London. But over the years, it's really evolved over time to, to address a much broader range of threats to the public health ranging from everything from gun control to domestic violence to climate change. And epidemiology, which we're hearing so much about today, is the research method that's used in public health. So epidemiologists look for risk factors that predict who's going to experience health problems or diseases. So risk factors, which are also called predictors, include things like individual behaviors, uh, smoking and, and leading sedentary lifestyles. And it can also be things like gender and age, personal characteristics, or even where people live and where they work. And so the goal is to identify risk factors and reduce the ones that we're able to in order to protect whole communities from health problems. So in recent years, epidemiologists have found that some of the strongest risk factors for things like early death and disease and disability, and even elder abuse, aren't individual characteristics or traits or behaviors, but in fact, our factors are social factors, factors like racism and trauma and social exclusion, literacy, 
uh, living in unsafe and underserved communities. And these are called social determinants of health. And so in the last two decades, a primary goal of public health has been promoting health justice. So public health offers a lot of really great tools for addressing threats to the public health. That includes the ecological model, which isn't exclusive to public health, but it's used a lot, which looks at health threats from four different angles, from the individual, interpersonal, community, and societal. And it offers interventions at all four of the levels. And public health also offers a, a continuum of prevention for preventing problems. So primary prevention is considered the gold standard. It's preventing problems from occurring in the first place through things like reducing risk factors. Secondary prevention is catching problems early on when they're, earlier, when they're easier to reverse, and that can involve things like screening and uh, checkups. And tertiary comes in after the fact, after problems have already occurred, and there the focus is on reducing the harm. So as you can see from the arrows, uh, public health isn't impartial. Primary prevention, as I said, is really the gold standard in prevention, and so are interventions at those bottom levels, at the community and societal levels, because those are the ones that really affect the most people. And it occurred to me when I was working on the book, that, the, that these frameworks might actually be a good way to think about elder justice and combating ageism in society. So this is how I think of it. At the individual level, elder justice is about protecting and defending individual rights. At the interpersonal level, it's about preventing abuses of power between people. At the community level, it's making communities more inclusive and accessible and safer for everybody. And at the systems level, it's institutionalizing elder justice in our law and also in public uh, attitudes and opinions. So individual rights uh, clearly begins with civil rights and threats that we face uh, to those rights. We know that things like racism, sexism, and the many other forms of injustice not only continue into old age, but they intersect and they have a cumulative impact that I think accounts for some of those glaring disparities that we see in life expectancy and health and wealth and security. But older people pay, uh, face some additional threats to their rights, and a major one is clearly cognitive impairment. We know that as we get older, we're much more likely to experience cognitive decline, and that risk of co cognitive decline increases as we get older, and it sometimes reaches the point where we're not able to exercise or defend our rights. So one way of, uh, just an example of a way to um, guard against that is through things like advanced directives, uh, things like powers of attorneys and trusts that are used to make people's wishes known in advance. But actually, very few people have advanced directives, and like all safeguards, uh, when it when it's used incorrectly, for example, when, they, when advanced directives are placed in the hands of the wrong people or for the wrong reasons, they can actually become licenses to steal. When people with impairments who don't have directives and they don't have families to act for them and they're in imminent danger, courts may be asked to step in and appoint guardians or what we call conservatorships in California. But guardianship also can be abused, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard some of the media accounts of egregious um, uh, 
uh, abuse by conservators. And guardianship is also a, a, a restrictive intervention. And so we have to be careful that we don't overuse it and that we have good alternatives. There are a few programs like daily money management and supported decision making that can help some people make decisions without actually taking control away from them. But those are actually in um, our, there aren't nearly enough of them as, as we need. There's also a lot of talk today about limited guardianships that are tailored to meet specific needs. And at CEJC, we've been working with Congressman Ted Liu of Los Angeles uh, to request federal funding that would help states look at their guardianship laws and try to improve on them and look for alternatives to guardianship. So older people have other rights that are often uh, disregarded. They include their rights as consumers. Consumers of long-term services and supports have rights. That includes things like protections against dangerous services and products, which requires government regulation and that we enforce those government regulations. And so when nursing homes pressure people into signing unfair binding arbitration agreements or when safety regulations aren't enforced, it may be violating residents' rights as consumers. In elder abuse, we also talk a lot about victims' rights. I think most Americans know their rights if they're arrested, even those of us who haven't been involved directly with the criminal justice system, but we watch television dramas. We probably know you have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be provided for you. But fewer people know their rights if they're victims of crime. And that includes the right to things like restitution from perpetrators, compensation for crime-related expenses. It's also the right to tell courts how they've been affected by crimes. And that usually happens during sentences or parole proceedings. Next slide. A lot of older people are denied those rights as victims. At the interpersonal level, elder justice is clearly about elder abuse. And that includes elder abuse in its various forms, physical abuse, financial abuse, neglect, and withholding care. It's also domestic violence, which often continues into old age. And that's really about using power and privilege to control intimate partners. Undue influence is when people who are more, power, who are more powerful use that power unfairly to manipulate or exploit people who are less powerful. I think when we talk about interventions in abuses of power, our response has been kind of uneven. We have a lot of screening tools to look for abuse and to look for undue influence, but there's been less attention to prevention. And I think we also need to, to pay more attention to reducing harm once abuse occurs. So I think for one thing, popular culture would have us believe that the only thing that victims want is to see their, their perpetrators prosecuted to the full extent of the law and to serve the, the harshest sentences possible. But those of us that work with older victims, we know that there are a lot of other things that victims want. They often want to get back what they've lost and make sure that they're not going to lose more. And often in abuse, we see abuse by family members. And when abuse is by family members, uh, victims oftentimes don't want to see their children go to prison. In fact, they want to see their, their children get help. And so that may be things like substance abuse counseling or treatment for mental illnesses. 
I'd also like to see a lot more attention on restorative justice, which focuses on restoring and rebuilding relationships and the damage that's been caused by crimes. So sometimes that may involve bringing whole families together or trusted members of the community. A few communities uh, in California had elder courts, which gives judges a lot more flexibility in how they handle cases and often involved uh, really enforcing restitution and bringing in other people that were involved in the, in the in crimes. Unfortunately, some of the, the elder courts that we had have actually disbanded, which I think is, is really regrettable. At the community level, elder justice is about making our communities more accessible and safer and reducing isolation. I think a great example is age-friendly communities, and that's an approach that comes from the World Health Organization, where it Communities bring together leaders and they talk about everything from transportation to housing to crime prevention. And some people have even said that in a truly age-friendly community, we wouldn't have elder abuse. I have a little bit of trouble getting my mind around that one, but when you look at what epidemiologists are telling us, that social isolation is really one of the strongest risk factors, I think there's an awful lot that we can do to make our community safer for everybody. Um, at the community level, we're also talking about fairness. And to, we're seeing a lot of injustice and discrepancies within communities and between communities in terms of access to services. Now, I've been a, a big proponent of community health workers. We had a terrific program, a community health worker program at City College where I used to work. And community health workers, or CHWs, are members of underserved communities who help build trust between the community and the formal healthcare system. I think they also, they're trained in things like health education, health literacy, motivational interviewing, community organizing, and how to advocate for both individuals and for whole communities. They're also trained to help people manage chronic conditions, things like diabetes, and hypertension, those things that we see have played such a large role in increasing vulnerability to COVID. See, uh, community health workers, for some reason, have just not really caught on in the field of aging, which I think is unfortunate. I think we're seeing today what happens when people don't trust the information they're getting or the people that they're getting that information from. And so I think it would really uh, behoove us to look more into community health interventions and community health clinics is another way of improving access to underserved communities. At the systems level, elder justice requires that public policies are constitutional and that they don't restrict people's rights unnecessarily. Nina Cohn is a constitutional scholar that I interviewed for the book, and she's done some really fascinating work looking at whether things like our reporting laws and our guardianship uh, laws are, are meet those standards that the Constitution set. And spoiler alert, she concludes that some state laws are better than others. I really would recommend that you look at some of her work. It's really fascinating. Mainstreaming is the idea that is making sure that older people's interests are reflected in virtually all of our public policies and programs. And I've talked to some advocates who go to forums on everything from women's rights to immigration to crime prevention, and they're always jumping up and asking, what about older people? It's really hard to imagine that just about any um, 
public policy that's being discussed today doesn't affect older people, whether it's immigration or climate change or criminal, uh, all of the uh, items that we're hearing so much about today. But affecting systemic change isn't just about policy. I think it's also about changing public's, the public's attitudes about old people and ageism. So a number of communities have launched anti-ageism campaigns, which I think is really great as long as we don't fall into the trap of identity politics that divides people rather than unites them. And in particular, I think we need to reject the generations at war narrative. I think Part of the problem is that programs like Social Security and Medicare are seen as aging programs that only affect older people. And when I was teaching, I used to try to get students to realize what an enormous stake they had in making sure that these programs were there for them. But it also has to work both ways. Older people have a tremendous stake in the success of younger people, and in particular, younger immigrants who provide enormous amounts of care to older people and really contribute to our communities and our economy. Unfortunately, because of the way that a lot of our programs are funded, the young and the old are often pitted against each other. So I think we really need to reject divisive tactics like that and allocate resources based on demographics and needs uh, and not on politics. You know, studies have shown, there have been some recent studies that have shown that the public actually responds really well to the language of elder justice. But I think we need to go beyond branding and messaging to give substance to that rhetoric. It's not just enough to reject ageism and elder abuse. I think we need a positive message that's anchored in those fundamental values that some of us were raised with and reimagined to meet the challenges that we face to get today. And so I believe that we need to make elder justice about Nussbaum's right to life for everybody, Bhutan's pillars of happiness. I think it's striking the right balance between freedom and safety and ensuring that when we do restrict rights, it's done as surgically as possible with due process. It's also about prioritizing interventions that do the greatest good for the greatest number of people and striking the balance between prevention and remediation. I think it's about fairness within communities and between communities. It's reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act and Olmstead. It's devoting the resources that we need to problems like elder abuse. It's consumer rights and victims' rights and the rights of prison inmates and those who are returning to their communities under compassionate release programs. It's also about mainstreaming to make sure that the interests of older people uh, are always recognized in all our policies. And I think it's also following the, in the footsteps of Maggie Kuhn to align with social justice advocates of all ages. So the elder justice agenda isn't done. It's really just a starting point. And hopefully it provides some new ways of thinking about elder justice and possibly suggesting ways that people can get involved. I think now more than ever, it's really critical that all of us bring our passion and our expertise, whether that comes from professional training or life experience, to the table, and that we promote those values that we were raised with, that so many before us have fought for, and that it's now up to us to preserve. I, I'll end by making a plug and inviting people, if you are interested in joining the dialogue, to 
uh, think about joining us at, at the California Elder Justice Coalition or supporting our work. You'll find us at elderjusticecal.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at, at elderjusticecal. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Bill Benson, who's no stranger to those of you who work in the field of elder abuse or aging. He's been a, a, a thought leader for many, many years, as Gloria said, and he's currently the, the policy director at the National Adult Protective Services Association and has a list of credentials that would use up the rest of the time that we have today. Lisa, that was outstanding. Terrific, terrific presentation. You covered an incredible amount of uh, the waterfront in a very short period of time. Yes, thanks for bringing up my, my work with the first person program at the Holocaust Museum. Um, it's, it's probably one of the most profound work experiences that I have ever uh, had the pleasure, if, if I can use that word, of being associated with, mostly because I've had the opportunity to get to know intimately a large number of Holocaust survivors and work with them, uh, an extraordinary group of people. Um, I, I think from a social justice standpoint, there, when one thinks about the Holocaust or any genocide, you, you have to really step back and think about the horrors of the state. When the state itself decides that it's going to trample on justice, it's pretty tough to overcome that. And um, I, that, that might resonate with folks thinking about some recent developments, even in our own, uh, our own country. But um, when the state steps in and says, we are basically going to deprive people of their rights, uh, we're going to deprive them of due process, deprive them of liberty, we're going to deprive them of life, and we're going to do it unmercilessly, it's very hard to resist that. And I think the second uh, takeaway for me from this is the just the silence from so many, much of it driven by fear. But, you know, as the saying goes, um, silence is complicity. And, um, and, and from there it all unrolls. We could, we could spend a very long time talking about that. But I'd like to turn to you, Lisa, with a couple of questions. And I'd like to, uh, you've, you've taken on such big themes in your book, elder justice, ageism, elder abuse, all within the context of social justice. I'd like to start, however, with ageism. That's, um, to me, that's an incredibly important topic because I think it undergirds so many of the issues that give rise to wanting to create or improve rights for older people. It's partly in response to ageist policies, ageist behavior, ageist attitudes. Nursing homes have been referred to over and over again as the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, as older persons have suffered more deaths than any other cohort, and so many of those deaths have been in nursing homes. I'm going to shift gears a little bit now on us on our, our questions, Lisa. You, um, you're fairly critical, if not quite critical, of mandatory reporting, and that's mandatory reporting of incidents of abuse, neglect, or exploitation. As, as you mentioned, we've got mandatory reporting laws in a lot of states. You write about that in your book. I was involved in writing California's first mandatory reporting law. I later regretted that to a large extent, um, uh, to be truthful, but, um, but, but, but there it is. So do you think that with respect to public policy that we've gone down the wrong path in creating and then expanding mandatory reporting laws? Well, you know, I, I have been critical. Um, and I don't think that we can say that, that we've, gone, we've taken the wrong path. But I think what we can say is that we don't know 
you know, as you know, it was the federal government that really raised this issue into the public consciousness. But then the, the federal government really led, left it up to states to develop their own response systems. And as I mentioned earlier, all of them kind of adopted the same model. There's only one state, New York, that doesn't have mandatory reporting. So we don't really know what another system would look like. Um, I'm, you know, from what I've, my experiences with New York, um, I think they, they've done a great job there. And I, I'm curious, I don't know, maybe you do, whether or not there have been evaluations that have looked at um, the impact of a mandatory system compared to a, a non-mandatory system. That's actually one of the reasons that I've been interested in looking at elder abuse and elder justice in, from, in other countries, because there are other countries that have looked at our mandatory reporting laws and have chosen to take a different route. Um, and I think it's important, though, that you know, we, we look at work like uh, Nina Cohn's and, and look at specific laws within states. You know, one of the things I think we also, one of the problems with mandatory reporting is that we tend to, you know, kind of let other entities in the aging network off the hook. You know, we tell people if they just report to Adult Protective Services, we'll take care of it. I think that really gives the wrong idea that um, we need to be, as a community of, of um, service providers and as a, as a broader community, as a broader public, uh, we need to be thinking about what we could be doing to make older people safer in their communities. To, to my knowledge, there's been very little, if any, evaluation of states' mandatory reporting laws. My major concern with mandatory reporting laws is that they get passed with you know considerable fanfare very often. Policymakers, legislators like to say, oh, you know, we're responding to the elder abuse crisis. We're requiring doctors and social workers and bankers and fiduciaries and the public to report when they suspect a case of uh, abuse or neglect or exploitation. Um, my, my guess is that by and large, since we have no data, that it's um, the laws honored in the breach. We have no idea if people actually report because we know that there's very little, very little assessment of people not reporting and certainly no penalties accrue even if the state requires a penalty for failure to report. I would be willing to bet that virtually no penalties anywhere in America have been provided for failure to report, but I'm guessing failure to report is widespread. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, 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 to a large extent, it's um, a, hollow, um, a hollow victory uh, in many respects, not entirely. Uh, gonna, uh, we, I know we're getting tight on our time. You and I have worked in this field for a very long time. I won't say how long, but a long time. Um, lots of decades, as a matter of fact. We know that today, and some of it's driven just sheerly by demographics and an aging society, but the numbers of older people who are abused are simply staggering, staggering. Some data suggests one out of 10 older people have been abused. Um, and we've not, we don't have enough research on that, but we've got some pretty good beginning ideas about that. We know that, that the number of elder abuse reports exceed the combined total of child abuse reports and domestic violence reports in this country. And the reports seem to be growing in numbers, particularly with respect to financial exploitation. If you were issuing a report card on what has been accomplished with respect to elder abuse, what would you grade and what would those grades be? <laughs> with a letter grade, even though I've um, been a teacher for a long time, I've gotten out of that. Um, I, think I had that, that in mind. Right. <laughs> I think where our greatest success is really that, you know, we've laid down some markers. 
we've said that society doesn't tolerate taking advantage of old people. And you know, we've also developed myriad interventions to prevent abuse. And there's been a, an enormous amount of innovation and creativity that, that's helped countless peoples. And I think we really have to applaud our field and each other for, for being able to accomplish that. I think though that you know, where we have fallen short is that as a field, we've been marginalized or, or siloed. I think we're just coming to terms, for example, with the fact that justice in old age requires that we, that we address injustices earlier in life, that, that many of the problems that we see in old age result from uh, people's experiences earlier in life. And so I think we really need to be working more closely with our, with our colleagues and, and fellow advocates and activists in the broader human rights movement. I think going back though to, to reporting, one of the pitfalls of the reporting system is that it creates this expectation that when you make a report, things are going to be handled. And again, I said this before, that I think we need to make sure that uh, people everywhere are thinking about how they can reduce risks for older people and prevent abuse. So I think we still have a lot of work to be done. I would agree with that, but I, I, I like your sense of uh, what we have accomplished, which is very nice. I think we're getting close to the end of our time. And so I think we probably need to turn it over to um, Denise in just a moment. But Lisa, before I do that, can you tell our viewers how they can get in touch with you? Uh, the best way is through uh, CEJC, the California Elder Justice Coalition. We're on um, online at uh, elderjusticecal.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. That's the best I way think, to reach me. Okay, that's good. Um, thank you, Lisa, and, and thank you for just um, giving us a, a window, really, um, a, a brief window into all that you've had to say in your book. It's a marvelous piece of work. Uh, you deserve a great deal of um, recognition for that, and I'm glad the Commonwealth Club is doing that by virtue of this program. So I'm going to turn it now over to Denise Mashad, um, who is the, um, the head of the uh, Adult Forum and uh, for her to say a few final words. If Thank I could just butt in before you, before you do, um, I just want to say what a pleasure it is to, to be working with you, Bill, and you've been so uh, instrumental in this field. I really appreciate it, and I could continue talking to you for hours and hours, so thanks. Well, we, we, we will, and I misspoke. Denise is the chair of the Grown Ups Forum, which is a so much better title than the Adults Forum. Uh, take it away, Denise. Thank you, Bill and um, Lisa. Our thanks to both of you, Lisa Nirenberg and Bill Benson, for joining us today. And thank you so much for sharing your important work. I want to thank also our viewing audience for tuning in. And uh, don't forget to uh, visit CommonwealthPod.org to see all of our upcoming programs. So again, I'm Denise Michaud, Chair of the Grown-Ups Forum. And this concludes our virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. Everyone have a wonderful day. Thank you again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.